let me hop in here and talk about our one of our sponsors for the podcast, Southern Coast Canine, based out in New Smyrna, Florida. Southern Coast Canine has been providing better training, better results, and better dogs for over 25 years. Led by Bill Heiser and known for their excellent high-drive dual-purpose and detection dogs and outstanding customer service. They have what you want and what you are looking for. Call 1-877-903-DOGS. That's 877-903-3647 and speak with Bill and to discuss your canine needs today. Or visit southerncoastcanine.com. That's the letter K, the number 9. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram at southerncoastcanine, the letter K, the number 9. This episode is brought to you by Highland Canine Training, LLC. They offer total solutions for law enforcement and military organizations to meet their increasingly demanding canine needs. Connect with them and see the difference. At tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com, that's tacticalpolice, the letter K, the number 9, training.com. Guys, they're fucking good. We all know the importance of having a good decoy for maintaining patrol and sport dogs. That's why I want to talk to you about Clint Morton, the North Texas Working Decoy, which is where you can find him on Facebook. Clint is an APPDA and NADF certified decoy, and he works in USPCA and trains in PSA as well. Clint's excellent at problem solving for patrol and sport dogs. Hit him up at camo, C-A-M-O, at E-C-T-I-S-P dot net, or hit him up on Facebook, North Texas Working Decoy. Yeah, I'm a crazy motherfucker walking up your street. Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. All right, back again with the next portion of our Ladies in Canine special series. Uh, Eric, you have anything else going on? Uh, let's see. What do I got? Um, just I, I've taken off the last two weeks of work. Um, I have some dogs in my kennel that I need to work on, so I took off time from work to do that. And um, I'm taking off next week. Uh, three days I'm going to Alexandria, Virginia, and doing a little uh, – not a seminar, I suppose. It's just really with Alexandria PDK9, showing them some things and having some fun down there. But um, I get a lot of comments, <clears throat> excuse me, lately on Instagram because if you look and see, I haven't shaved, so I have this scruff going on, right? So I, get <laughs> yeah, this, I saw that. A lot of cool stuff going on in the DMs over my scruff and everything. <laughs> but, what, but what people don't understand is it's two weeks of growth. So like most grown men would have a, a whole Santa beard by now. I have. I, I mean, mine, like, was, mine would be way bigger. <laughs> right. I, I look, right. Exactly. You would have a hell of a beard. I, on the other hand, look like, um, like a child. Molester. So I have to shave. <laughs> I can't remember. I'm shaving it. I'm shaving it Saturday morning. So. Oh God. I can't remember the last time I shaved. It's been a while. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Fuck you. Yeah. laughs> I don't really have anything to put in here. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Tonight, or all right now, in this second part, we've got Kendall Bourne on from St. Working Dogs down in Texas. Kendall, how are you? 
Oh, Peachy, how are you guys? Doing well. That's a must of fucking Texas thing, Peachy. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm the only one that says it. <laughs> you know, we uh, when we were kind of lining out the guests for this episode, we or this like series, we wanted to do like you know some handlers, some trainers, some breeders, um, kind of like the gamut of like women and canine Alicia was on and we're going to do another episode um, after this with um, some of what we're going to do. The artists of canine and Alicia is actually going to um, host that one um, probably with Eric. I won't be there cause it'll just turn into a shit show. So, um, but you know, we wanted to specifically have you on um, for a couple of reasons. We had an interesting conver- couple of conversations on the podcast with guys like subtle and a couple of other guys uh, with Pat Nolan, um, and the, we've kind of revolved around breeding, um, or Ritland also, and we didn't do a specific breeding, um, like episode, and that's not really where this one is, but it is going to cover some of that stuff. So with that said, you know, um, we kind of, you know, Eric and I kind of talked about it and we kind of came to consensus that we were going to have you on, uh, this would be a perfect time to do the ladies of canine thing. Plus, talk about some of the breeding stuff. Um, I've interacted with you for years on Facebook and, you know, we're kind of on the same page in terms of, you know, what we look for in dogs, what we look for in breedings, what we look for in workability and this, that, and the other, and what we feel the important things are. And I think we're starting to build a theme through these episodes of either dispelling some myths or cementing some truths. I don't know how you want to put it, but you know, that being said, why don't you kind of give us kind of your background a little bit? Cause I know you like horses, which scare the shit out of me and, uh, I, I horses I'm out on I, I, dogs. I got no problem. Horses pass. So. <laughs> it's funny. It's, it's the same, man. I, I have people come over there and they'll come train and, and they'll get and mess with the gnarliest dogs. But you, you, they won't get near the horses, man. They, I, I can completely, I can completely identify with that. <laughs> Big animal, small brain. I think that's, that's the issue yeah. there, but they can bite fingers off. <laughs> yeah. Really? I haven't bitten my dogs a lot. Um, I think, uh, I guess I'll, you know, I come from, um, as long as I can remember, I've kind of, uh, trained animals, you know, one way or another, I started off driving my, uh, our pet dogs nuts and training them a bunch of stuff they didn't need to know. And, um, became apparent at a pretty young age that, that I was probably going to make a living at it doing one way or another. And, uh, went into showing, uh, reigning horses pretty much 100%. And I'd say like I went to an athlete school so I could go, uh, around the country and compete, um, for, for high school. I finally dedicated to, I think I went to school for like two hours a day, um, during my high school, um, I guess, career. And when I got out of high school, I went professional and was riding and training professionally. And it's, it's a tough life. Um, it's riding and training horses is, um, it's tough, you know, it's tough on you. It's tough on the animals. Uh, it's a high overhead cost. Uh, it's a rich fan sport. And, um, so, you know, I, I always wanted to get into training dogs. I'm the type of person, whatever I do, I want to do like the highest level. You know, or what I consider the highest level, you know, there's arguments on, I mean, there's a lot of, um, 
it, it's an opinion, you know, a, a preference or an opinion. But when when I really started having a calling to go to dogs, uh, I really wanted to get into training um, police dogs because I wanted to see my hard work go into benefiting somebody else. And, and that's truly a, a really cool feeling. You know, I don't think anybody gets rich off selling police dogs. Uh, but it, there's a pride behind it, you know, going and seeing, especially from a breeding aspect, you know, I watch these puppies, uh, grow up and then I get to send them in and I get to go watch them, you know, do, do what their genetics kind of laid out for them. So I got into it, um, kind of funny, uh, or kind of a cool story. I think it's a cool story. Uh, I don't know anybody that, that, that works, or I do now, but at the time I didn't know anybody who, who trained working dogs or had working dogs or sport dogs or canine officers. I really didn't have any real into the working dog world aside of just Facebook, which I'm smart enough to know that that's a dangerous, uh, you know, inlet. You can get, you can get the, the wrong, the wrong in really easily on the internet. And so really I just basically Googled working dogs, Texas. Or, or police dogs, Texas, and the, and the first big contract company that popped up on on uh, my Google search, I sent an email to, and it was you know I just sent them an email and said, hey, you know I come from a, a background of training animals, um, and this is something I've I've always wanted to get into, and uh, it was Global Training Academy, which I'm sure most people know who they are. They're they're super old, uh, been around probably one of the oldest contract companies, and uh, Roddy Johnson, one of the owners of of global calls me back and you can tell he's so skeptical on the phone. He's kind of like, so you're not a police officer. You're not military. And you've never had, you know, uh, been deep into working dogs. I was like, no, I just really want, you know, it's something I really wanted to do. And so he invites me out and I kind of snowballed from there. Uh, I got really, really involved with them and, and another trainer outside of Houston and it snowballed and the genetics has always been, my my passion and I've got a horse breeding program um that I've had I started when I was probably you know 10 or 11 and, and I, I learned a lot of yeah I learned a lot of um, I made a lot of my mistakes mostly with the horses so I didn't have to repeat it when I got into the dog because uh, genetics are genetics it doesn't matter whether you're talking about plants or people or or, it, or dogs or cats it you know it really doesn't matter and so I was lucky to make a lot of those mistakes. I made all the same mistakes. I just made them in a different, in a different venue. And um, from the first time I started with working dogs, I would see a dog I really, really liked. And I, my first question comes from the horse world because genetics are a huge, huge deal in the horse world because you got one shot to make a breeding work in the horse, in the horse world. You got, it's an 11 month gestation you get one shot and your breeding fees are about $5,000 a shot. You know, that's not including your actual cost for breeding and stuff like that. So you, it's a big investment when you're, when you're producing a, a performance working uh, full. Um, so, you know, a lot of the people that I got into the working dogs, they don't know anything about genetics. And so they're like, this crazy girl keeps asking me, you know, what all these lines of these dogs are, they just throw the, they throw the, the, you know, a lot of more pH one dogs. And so they'd give me their pH one certificate and then I'd go, you know, look them up and, and I'd get the dogs I liked. And then I would look up the dogs I really didn't like. And so I started deciphering and seeing, 
what lines work for me and, and what I really liked in a dog and, and what I really didn't like in a dog. And so I spent about two years really just researching uh, pedigrees and seeing the outcomes and, and researching crosses that had worked and been successful. It's a little harder in Dutch dogs because uh, success is, you know, is not necessarily just a title dog. You know, the dogs can go off and they can be police dogs and never heard from again, which is one of the problems that we're seeing that you guys have discussed on, uh, you know, your previous podcast. And, uh, so, you know, that just became almost an obsession for me. I just got really, really deep into it. And, and, uh, from that point I started building, building my program off of a need, um, because I'd see maybe two dogs out of 30 or 40 that, that they were testing or they would come out that to me were worth feeding. You know, the rest were just, mostly nerve problems, you know, more than anything, it was mostly nerve problems. I mean, a Dutch ear, a Mali biting, people act like, they, you know, I see a thousand videos on Facebook of puppies biting, you know, rags and this and that. Like, I don't go outside and take pictures of videos of birds flying. Like, they act like it's this magical thing with these Dutch ears and Mali bite stuff. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. 99% of dogs are washed because of nerve, of nerve problems, you know, confidence or nerve problems. Rarely is it because the dog doesn't have, uh, maybe not over the top drive, but enough drive, you know, they, they, they'd have a purpose somewhere. Um, but you can't do anything with a dog with bad nerves. So, I mean, really there's no real good outlets for dogs like that. Yeah. We just had a rescue and that we, for, we placed today that was not even remotely a working dog. And she was fucking scared of the air conditioner. She's scared of doors. She's scared of going through doors. She's scared of a leash. And I mean, it was a fucking nightmare. And I take for granted a lot of times when you have a dog that is just like rock solid and, you know, they're not scared of anything. And, you know, you give a handler who's never handled a dog like that. And they think they're all fucking that way. And then they go around and turn and buy another dog. And they're like, well, shit, why is this one scared of this? Or what's wrong with this? And you're like, well, <laughs> like, yeah, you got lucky <laughs> the first time. So, and I mean, that's, I mean, I really blame that on your breeders. I really 100% blame that, uh, on your breeders. Um, you know, I, I just, you can tell on a pup very, very early in most cases, uh, nerves and, and confidence, you know, for me, when I'm picking a puppy out of a litter, I, I don't, I don't even worry about pulling a rag out or a puppy sleeve or anything like that. I mean, I, they've got, they've got 15 generations of working dogs behind them. I mean, the likelihood of them not biting something is, you know, is so low. And so, so to me, I, I'm looking at the puppy that's, that's confident. I just want the puppy that if I, you know, if a loud noise happens, they don't even necessarily have to, uh, run to it. I just want the dog that stands up and looks at it and isn't fit or ignores it. You know, I, I just want the solid nerves, um, confident dog. And, and that's, that's the real important thing to me. And I, I get it a lot because people will put deposits down on puppies. And since I hold puppies back from all my litter, you know, you've sold puppies before. So a lot of times it's, about the time it comes to start sending puppies to their homes, the, the people that buy the puppies kind of turn into these vultures. Right. And uh, they, they want to know, you know, what puppy is theirs, what puppy is theirs. And I, and I don't really care. Like if, if, like if, if somebody is like, you know, they've got their heart set on this, as long as I look at the puppy and I think that it's a capable hand, 
um, I don't care. I'll take the last pick of the puppy. I'm confident enough in, in, in what I'm producing that I feel like even the, the worst pick puppy is, is good enough, you know, good enough for me if it has to be that way. And it's the same, you know, the same from the, who I buy my puppies from overseas. I don't even ask. I just say, Hey, you know, they, they'll post a breeding up and they'll, or they're going to make a breeding and they'll send me a message say, you know, that they're, they're having this particular pairing and, I just send them a deposit and they send me a puppy. <laughs> like, right. I don't even, I don't, I mean, I trust them. You know, they, they know more than me. They've, they've been in it longer than I've been alive. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think everybody can agree that there is a, there's a lot of people breeding dogs a lot. I mean, everybody's breeding dogs right now, but they're not very many breeders. Even in Europe, there's not very many people with actual breeding programs, you know, and they're just taking dogs that they have. And I'm not saying they're maybe not nice dogs, but they're just taking dogs and breeding them. And they're satisfied with one or two puppies in that litter being, you know, good, solid dogs. That's not okay with me. If I had a litter that only had one or two good, nice working dogs, I'd never make that cross again. Uh, that's not enough for me. It shouldn't be enough for anybody. If you're breeding correctly uh, and you're breeding methodically and scientifically um and looking at the the right the dogs that are in front of you then there's no reason why you can't run you know 80 80 plus percent success rate on your litters um but people people are still trying to just take two dogs and and put them together and 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 hoping that it works because they're a great 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 grandson of duco too and out of a daughter of Barry too. And they think that it's just going to be this magical combination. that's going to, you know, those dogs are in there. They must be good, you know? <laughs> right. Well, Duco two's in fucking everything. I mean, and then, you know, on the NVBK side, I mean, I think ATM has more fucking pedigrees than that dog has actual puppies. That dog's got more kids than DMX. I mean, he, he, he <laughs> has supposedly <laughs> sired like 15,000. That's crazy. Talk. Stop. <laughs> I, I mean, no, but seriously, I mean... He owes a lot of challenges. Well, no, like, we talked to Yoris, which we didn't actually didn't air that episode, but, you know, we talked about it, and Yoris was like, oh, yeah, the A-10 pedigree, I guess it depends on which one you look at, and you're like, uh, yeah. I mean, you know... Oh, yeah, I I got a dog sitting... I have a dog sitting in my kennel right now, very prolific, pretty... I'm not going to say his name, but uh, he's an old dog, um, and he is the son of... He's the son of Django, and... He is, you know, looked at as a fairly prolific sire dog, and his pedigree is not. Everybody knows it's not right. You know, they hung it for SCI papers, and so, uh, and to me, I'm like the truth person. I'm like, hey, let's just out it, put the pedigree up there, and everyone's like, no, you can't do that. (laughs) You can't do that. People freak the fuck out. They're like, oh, yeah, no, 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 you can't do that. So... You know, and you kind of touched on something. Um, so, you know, Ritlin and Subtle both kind of echoed the same sentiment is that, you know, the Europeans are, and to that extent, you know, um, the Americans, you know, we're, we're taking the best dogs that we have, like the genetic specimens for what we want for work, and then we're sending them out to work, and then they're effectively never being collected they're never being bred a lot of that is um a lot of departments here have policies against it specifically against it um you know a lot of them look at it as it's a little you know it's a little underhanded or it's in a gray area that we probably shouldn't do it but you know we're we're quickly overfishing that pond and when we had heiser on um 
you know, talking about it, you know, five, even five years ago, I mean, you would get dogs that were 22, 24, 26 months old that were green. And now, you know, we're getting like 13 month old dogs that are green dogs. And, you know, that's what the the age range is. I mean, has, has started to, to drop or widen, I guess, drastically. So, you know, and I think Eric and I both said, you know, at one point I was like, I don't remember who said it, it was probably me. I was like, I would love to get to a point where I didn't have to buy anything from Europe ever again, but we don't have a, a rich culture in the United States of doing that. Some of it is from what I just mentioned and some of it is because it's, you know, the U.S. is big and, you know, we've got other stuff like basketball or whatever that we care about. Well, so. We're shipping a dog over, we're shipping a dog over right now. It's 1500 bucks. Yeah. Well, you know, then, just to ship the dog. Then there's that, but yeah, and that's a relatively new thing too. So, you know, I mean, yeah. fuck you, United Airlines. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but they're back. They're 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 doing. It. I mean, it doesn't. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> they, they, but but everybody, it's this ripple effect now that all the airlines are raising their costs, and even if it had nothing to do with them, yeah, they're still they're they're taking advantage of it. Oh yeah. So, you know, I mean, one of the things that we look at is, like you said, they're just putting two dogs together. Or they get a dog that, you know, is probably a fantastic patrol dog. And they're like, oh, well, you know, he has to be a great sire, right? Or, he, you know, he should produce himself well or whatever. So they're like, oh, we'll just do this and see what happens. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So if you were to kind of give a broad direction and the way – that breeders should go for working dogs specifically. I don't really care about gun dogs and why. I mean, not in this podcast, not in this specific episode anyway. Um, it, it's the same. It doesn't matter right. what you're talking about. So it's, it's the same. But which direction should they um, be they, looking at? I mean, cause I know what they're, I mean, and of course I'm excluding breeders that are shit bags that are like, Oh, we breed dark or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? Like the, Gilbert has to, didn't, to me, there are two different types of people, uh, which I'm not necessarily putting a good and a bad here. There's just two separate groups of, of, of breeding uh, um, categories, I guess. There are people that breed dogs, and then there are breeders. And, and, and the, when I say somebody who breeds dogs, uh, I would say um, a good example is something like, let's say Stacey Beller is both somebody that we, we respect. Stacy's got a nice set, nice little um, breeding pair of dogs that's been, you know, really successful for him. Um, and he's done it very intelligently. And he's had a lot of success. He's on a second litter that he's had with, with his dog. And, uh, but I'm sure if you ask Stacy, he's not going to go tell you he's a dog breeder. Uh, he doesn't have a 15, 20 year, or I don't think he, he does. He, he might uh, disagree with Stacy and I talk quite a bit. Uh, he doesn't have like a 20, uh, 15, 20 year goal for his, for his breeding program. He's, you know, he's got his niche with his nice, his nice female and his really super, super nice male. And, uh, he's been really successful with it. That, that's it. That's what I would consider, uh, the good side of, of somebody who, who breeds dogs, but isn't a breeder. Um, and we won't go into the, the people that fall into the bad <laughs> part of that yeah. category. Cause that would just, that would just take all day. Yeah, but, right. and then you have the, the dog breeders, uh, to me, if you're a dog breeder, uh, you have to have some sort of actual program, you know, every time I make a, a cross, especially over the past, uh, since it started, you know, the past three years, my breedings have mostly been for my benefit, not, not for anybody else. They're to set up, 
the basis of my breeding program that's going to carry me into the next 20 or 30 years, hopefully. Um, so it was really important for me to set a really strong foundation uh, of really strong, healthy, healthy working dogs because that's going away like fast. And these genetics that carry those healthy dogs that are able to stay on the street until they're 10 years old are, are dwindling quickly. Like we're having super, super fast maturing dogs, but they're retired by the time they're seven, you know, six or seven because, you know, they're unsound or, or they, they're, you know, they have problems, you know, physical problems um, among other things. But that's the, the big one is, is healthy, you know, healthy dogs that are good mothers that uh, are fertile dogs that, that are also producers. You know, you see dogs, we'll just stay on Duco two for a second, just because none of us really ever, you know, have any idea about Duco two on between the three of us. We've never seen the dog, we've never worked the dog. He's this mystical unicorn that everybody talks about. But to me, if I'm thinking about Duco two as a producer, to me, he's not, he was never a producer. A producer to me is a dog that, uh, that, consistently produces um or stamps or or puts a stamp on his puppies or a particular phenotype despite almost anything that he's bred to i'm not saying he should he should be bred to everything but uh that's a strong producer same on the female line uh then there are males that produce uh females that produce It's, it's without getting too deep into into you know dorky genetics there's a lot of thought to it. And so when you're looking at a pedigree, some of my, some of the pedigrees that I concentrate on will be on a mother line. We'll use Tash, for example, or Tasher. It depends on, I'm Texan, so I'm going to say a lot of Dutch words, <laughs> you know, mm. the way that I say them. So, mm. But that's a pretty prolific female that people, that, that people know of. There's not very many females that people talk about, but that's one that some, you know, the Dutch followers and, kind of know and and so if you're wanting to concentrate on on tash you're going to um have a breeding where where tash shows up the most on the mother side to bring those traits forward at on the female line um duco too to me you know he was such a hit and miss and not very healthy dogs like you 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 line breed heavy on most of his sons and you have a lot of health issues uh, and, and nerve issues that, that will pop up if you get too heavy on, uh, or even, even light. I did a light line breed on Duco too. And I, you know, half the liver had problems. So, <laughs> you know, the physical problems. Right. So are um, you, but, but anyways, uh, go ahead. Sorry. That's right. Are you mostly collecting dogs? Or are you, are you actually wanting to be there and physically, uh, you know, putting the dogs together you have just a, a whole setup with a, a vet that you use that because uh, for example, a little bit of everything. A, yeah. You have, you, you store it at your house or, or not your house at your facility, or do you have it, you know, we have a place locally. Somebody. I live, I live about 15 minutes from Texas A&M university. I was in the, I was in, um, equine reproduction for, you know, most of my life. I worked in a lab coat for six and a half years of my life. Um, so as far as knowledge goes, I can pretty much do everything besides obviously surgical AI. I can't do that because I'm not a vet. Um, but my storage of my, my semen, we actually have here locally, uh, which is super convenient. I don't have to use cryo labs and, or the, the, because when I'm breeding, you know, 
then you gotta, I, I'm a procrastinator by nature and you can't really procrastinate when you're breeding. And so if I've got a female that's ready and then I got to ship my semen all the way across the country or, or, uh, even from overseas, you know, I'm, I'll most likely miss it. So I got to keep it locally, but I, I have, um, we have some stud dogs here, um, that are all similar bred. It started with my main stud dog. And, uh, for anybody that's, start is thinking about starting a breeding program and I see a lot of people and people are going to know exactly who I'm talking about when I say this because they're the same group of people that constantly ask me about they send me like 20 BRNs a week they've got a nice mail and they send me like 20 BRNs a week and they're like and they'll just send me the BRN like I'm supposed to know what to do with it and so I look at it and I'm like okay what do you want me to do with this oh do you think it'll cross on my mail and I like, well, what is the female like? You know, it's not just the pedigree. Well, I haven't seen the female yet. Well, why don't you look at the Ooh. female first and tell me? But you have to invest in your dog. Like, if you have a nice male uh, or female, it doesn't matter, um, you have to invest. If you're not going to be willing to put money into your own dog and invest in your own dog, why do you think other people will? And that's kind of what I, I'm running into is seeing, you know, a lot of these dog people, they're cheap, man. They're cheapskates. They don't want to spend money on, on their own stuff, and and you have to. You know, if that's what you're going to do, if you're really going to breed dogs, if you're not going to put forth the, you know, 4500 to 6000 to buy a nice female, I mean, these litters pop out anywhere between 8 and 12 puppies, and you can't put forth, you know, four or $5,000 to buy a nice female. Uh, right. You know, you have to do that and, and people don't want to. And, but if somebody is really wanting to start a program, the first thing they have to do is identify the dogs, the, the type of dogs that they like and they appreciate. And that's a preference. You know, some people like softer dogs. Uh, some people like a little more biddable dogs. Some people like, you know, handler aggressive dogs. And, and then dogs like, I tend to like a, a little a harder dog, a dog that takes corrections and br- brushes them off. And uh, I don't, I don't think anybody really likes handler aggression. I think uh, people think they do until they get a dog like that and <laughs> they realize how big of a pain in the ass it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I end up with them. So that's how uh, I, I believe me, I've got some. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. So, <clears throat> you know, once you have, you know, done, you know, the, like you said, I mean, you kind of hit on some of the high points, like, you know, having a plan long term. And you talked about, like, Stacy doing some things that, and, you know, I mean, fuck that dog. His stupid dog almost bit me in the face twice two weeks ago. That was fucking sketchy. He's a cool dog, man. Uh, Tuco's great. He's he, a cool great, dog, for but sure. But when you throw water in his face and he can't see, he aims for your face. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, that was hairy. Um, so, but you know, like your face. Yeah. I, twice. I was glad to see him finally get his three, man. You can't get a better, nicer guy, a nicer team right there for that to happen. Oh, I too. completely agree. Uh, and you know, they were, you know, it was great too. And I mean, uh, the first day he missed it by a little bit. And, um, the second day, I mean, that was a watching it being there. Cause I was one of the decoys on the field. So, I mean, I was there and, it was interesting because, you know, I, I've trialed, I've caught that dog at every level of his PSA career, like at every, like the ones, two, three, I mean, at every single level. When he's failed, when he's made mistakes, when the dog has made mistakes, when Stacy's made mistakes. And I think we take it for granted a lot of the time when guys, like, dogs like that would come out or um, when Derek, when he remembers to check his muzzle, 
comes out and they do these obedience routines and they just knock it out of the park when, you know, we're just going fucking at bat shit crazy next to the dog and they don't even care. And it looks, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, it looks... My nerves are not that good. Right. I mean, it looks normal, right? It's just like, oh, the dog doesn't even really give a shit. But then, like, I know, like, how much time Stacy has put into that and Koi and that entire club. They've got, like, 75 fucking... Oh, and anybody that gets to that level, man. I mean, I go through the PDC and I'm like, my dogs look like they can't wait to get off the field. Right. (laughs) You know, they're not... I didn't prepare them for that. You know, you... You, I, I'm not a sport person. I competed with horses for so long that I think the idea of competing heavily with my dogs just, it just disgusts me because I did it for so long. I'm pretty burnt out of it. Uh, but I, it's one of those things that like you sit by and you, like when Megan Hamby did her, you know, that's the first one I've seen, uh, in real life or, or in person and the, just the appreciation that you see, uh, from outside, you cannot be a, a uh, an, an appreci- appreciating an athlete or an art form and watch something like that and and not think that it's cool you know whether or not you love PSA or you know you're you're a real dog sport dog argument you know what drive they're working in kind of people you can't sit there and not uh, appreciate something it's 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 really just almost magical to watch something like that happen. Oh, it's yeah. really cool. I was the, it's never, it's never going to be me, but it's pretty cool. Yeah. I was there for <laughs> Megan's too. I was one of the decoys at Megan's in Houston. And that was, that was pretty, that was another one where, you know, watching her do the obedience when, you know, Josh and I and Jake are running around acting like idiots and, you know, felon just didn't care. It was, it was, it's actually really cool to be out there as a decoy when we get to do those. Um, because I mean I know what goes into and how long that takes, but a bit. So I mean, for example, well, I guess not for example, but on the other side of that, um, you know that 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 is a very good point about you know we select dogs for that specific venue. Um, Tuco is extremely social. Like I mean, you can I mean you can have be a seated decoy near him and he's completely indifferent. And you can be walking around his spine, you know, and so on the police side or on the military side, police and military side, you know, you started off the conversation by talking about nerves and all that kind of stuff and washing. So kind of talk a little bit about how you address that when you get a new dog or when you get puppies or how you see that progression working as you go through training. Cause I know how I do it. I'm pretty sure I know how Eric does it, but I just kind of want to hear from you like how, and I think people want to hear also like what you're looking for specifically, because this leads into another question in a second. Well, if I'm, if I'm answering this incorrectly, it's because I don't quite understand what you're, what you're <laughs> asking, but, but, uh, so if I, I am just stop me and, and tell me that I'm, so I don't just rant about something that's, that's wrong. But, uh, to, to me, um, I figure it out pretty quickly because the dogs that I hold back for my, my green dog program, which is a very limited amount right now, I was telling you the other day, I'm, I'm, I'm limited on space right now. We're, we're about to build a 75 dog kennel um, here pretty soon. And then we'll be open to hold more green dogs back. Uh, we'll actually probably start holding back our, our, our entire litters or at least all the males from our litters um, to supply that. But, you know, I, I, from the lines that I won't go into the, the particular lines that I focus on uh, because I have a feeling that if I do, then people aren't going to go do their own research and find out what dogs they, they like. Uh, but the, I pretty much copycatted a program. Uh, I, I'm not, 
you know, ashamed to say, you know, Dick and Selena Van Leeuwen are, are my big mentors in Holland. And, uh, I completely, you know, stole their program with their permission and with their, with their guidance. Um, because, um, I appreciate that type of dog. Uh, it's not everybody's type of dog, but, but to me, um, I don't deal with nerve issues. So when I heavily line breed on, on these dogs, and even when I outcross on the dog, it, it, it seems that the nerves in uh, a big thing that for me, one of the biggest at things that I look for in a dog that I don't think a lot of people talk about that is absolutely a must have for me is clear headedness. I got to have a clear headed dog uh, over, over absolutely everything. I can't stand the dogs that get spun up and unclear and, and, you know, dogs that those are the dogs to me that are the biggest pain in the asses to work. Like they're exhausting to work. Um, they expend so much energy just because the world is just a new place for them every time they come out. Um, and I don't particularly like that kind of dog. You know, I don't mind it so much if I have like a bomb dog for, if I've got a pointer that's all over the place that can redirect, that can focus that drive on something but I got to have a clear headed dog over, over everything else. And so, um, if I have the nerve, if I see that in a puppy, which, uh, the line of do- the particular line of dogs that I focus on, I've never seen a difference, uh, from the time that puppy's born, um, through teething, through everything, the dog is the, the puppy that was born, uh, is the puppy that I end up with after teething is the puppy that I end up with after maturity. Um, the only thing that changes is the drive. The drive will change, but, but not the nerve, not the confidence, not the baseline dog. And, uh, I don't waste a lot of time with it. Um, I'm not going to say that in the, in some of my earlier, my trial litters that I didn't, didn't have some dogs that, uh, I wouldn't own. I'm not going to say that. But if I had a dog, like the litter I was telling you about that I line bred on, uh, particularly I line bred on, on Django, I wasn't happy with the litter. Uh, I really wasn't happy with the litter at all. But I wanted to make sure it wasn't a maturation issue because sometimes, you, you know, I, I'm sure all you guys have seen the puppies that, I mean, they come out and they're on fire. Like, you know, six, seven, eight weeks old, they're on fire. Then they hit teething and they go through a kind of a weird stage. Um, and sometimes they snap out of it, sometimes they don't. And so for scientific curiosity reasons, I placed some of those dogs really close to home so I could watch them mature to see if, uh, and I wasn't going to make the cross again until I watched those dogs mature and kind of see, and I didn't like it. Even at maturity, they're about a year and a half old now and I don't like them. Uh, I wouldn't feed any of them. So it's just me. Maybe my standards are too high, but they look funny at things there. Most people probably wouldn't jump out and call it a nerve issue, but to me it's a nerve issue. And, uh, it's not worth it and I won't waste time on it, you know? Um, so to me, if I see any hint of, of actual nerve issues, I just don't waste my time anymore. I, I put them in a, in a, maybe a beginner sport home or, or somebody that, uh, can handle the dog or, or something. I usually just end up giving the dog away or super cheap. So is that, is that the answer to your question? That yeah, you uh, that, that definitely answered. Yeah, that was, that was good because, and that was kind of leading up to it. So when we're, when, cause you know, we talked to subtle and he said, you know, when he's doing dog buys or when they're doing selection or evaluation, like you can tell, he says, you know, I can tell in the first couple of minutes if I'm going to buy that dog or not. 
Um, and especially if he's bought from the same vendor before. <clears throat> and he goes, you know, it always kind of cracks him up when guys come out on a buy trip. And sometimes they're doing it because they're out wasting time, which I understand. But they want to, you know, test dogs for days at a time and all this other stuff. And um, I'm kind of the oh, same yeah, way. Man. Like, we got in three or four. We got in four dogs recently, like, fairly recently. And, you know, we got them out. And, I mean, the day they got here, you know, we were getting them out and working them. And I could immediately tell that, you know, some of them – uh, you know, they were like, first of all, the hottest they'd ever been, you know, was like 60 degrees and then they get here and it was like <laughs> 97. So I kind of understood a little bit and I'm like, I know it's hot and humid fellas, but you know, and then, you know, they kind of got used to the heat and now they're just rocking and rolling and they're going to all be patrol dogs and whatever else. So I, but I could immediately tell, like, once we got them, I was like, yeah, okay, these guys are going to be fine. So, and uh, yeah, I don't much care. Obviously it, it's, you guys are going to probably agree on this. A lot of it has to do with the age of dog. You know, if I'm getting in like a seven, eight month old dog, um, and they get out and they kind of look around, um, and I'm aloof, especially if you get really super serious lines, which is pretty much the only dogs that I concentrate on. Sometimes those dogs, they view the world a little differently. Very serious dogs. Uh, that's just the world is a different place for them than a, than a super prey oriented, uh, you know, happy, you know, they're going to kill you with kindness. That's what I call those dogs. I've got a stud dog that he's never had a bad day. He'll wreck you. He will wreck you all day long, but he's, his tail's wagging. He's happy to be the whole time. Like that's just, that's his demeanor. Uh, but a lot of the dogs I have are not like that. They're very, very serious. And, and so I'll, I'll cut a puppy a slack, some slack if they're an adolescent dog and they're aloof. But a lot of people can't tell the difference between an aloof dog and a dog that is, um, that, that is having a, a confidence issue. It's kind of hard to read sometimes, um, but it, that age range. But if, if I have like an older dog, you know, what you're looking at, a green dog age 14, 15 months, and it hops out, hops out of the trailer, it's got its tail between its legs, you know, it's, it's you know, low-headed, you, you know, I'm pretty much decided at that point that, that you know, this dog is probably not going to be up to my standards. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what, that's what everybody says. You can uh, tell as soon as the dog's coming out, well, almost immediately, whether you're going to even mess with the dog or not. Right, I just so think we... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and take a take a few minutes here, a uh, little commercial break or a couple minutes here, uh, and then we'll be back. Um, I have a couple questions for you. I'm interested about the, the horse-dog uh, correlation. So... Um, we're going to do things a little bit differently on this commercial. I'm going to do kind of like a, a live commercial because something really cool happened. Uh, you know, again, we're a dog trip sponsor. Our dog trip is our sponsor. And uh, they're sending Ted and I cool stuff to try out. So they have a new collar called the Pathfinder, and it's a GPS collar that they have. And I made a video about it the other day uh, in my kennel, just a goofy video, and I'm showing the, the packages. And then a, uh, a handler went and bought the collar. So today he sends me, he gets it today. And of course, like anything, he's got to open it up and work with it. And um, right away, he tells me it's very user-friendly as well. It took him about two minutes to set it up. And then he tells me there's a little bit of a gap. And he comes back and he says, this thing is amazing. Literally tells me everything about what he's doing. Running, walking, stop, compass direction, altitude, video playback. And you can still use the, uh, the e-collar as an e-collar. So it's not just a GPS tracker, it's actually an e-collar as well. So uh, 
I, I wanted to do, uh, get kind of a live commercial in there for Dogtra. It's the Pathfinder. And again, even though we're testing it, these things are available. They came out in May. So uh, check them out, uh, Dogtra, the Pathfinder. Ted, what did they send you? Uh, they sent me the 1900S, which is something, that, well, the hands-free version. And I've been using the S for the uh, 1900 for, I don't know, ever. And it's the one that we always, like, all the dual-purpose dogs that leave the kennel uh, with the handlers get those. And um, I they had been making the ARC with the hands-free thing, but they finally made the 1900S with the hands-free. And my thing is I always hate wearing that fucking remote around my neck all the time, whether it's mm-hmm. whoever it is. But... Um, so they have this little rad button now that I just wear under my glove or I put it around my wrist and I just set the remote like wherever in my pocket or whatever. And then when I'm using the remote and it's fucking perfect, it's super easy. I don't dick around with it and I don't hit it on stuff. I don't snag it. It does dog. The other one, I have a dog now that if there's anything swinging around your neck, he thinks it's a fucking ball and goes for it. And (laughs) yeah, that, that happens. So that's always fun. I don't have to worry about that. And then they sent that ball popper, which uh, I was using it today with uh, Logan and one of the other dogs. And it's fantastic. It's a dropper and uh, a popper. So instead of two separate units, it does both things. And it will launch a beer can, and it will launch a tennis ball like seven feet in the air. So um, it'll launch mm. rolled towels. It'll do the smaller Kongs, um, and then you can load several tennis balls in it at once. And I think I could, we could do like five at once, I think, if we were working. Uh, I had it setting up on top of some of the lockers that we were using. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's a super slick setup, and it's relatively inexpensive compared to what is out, considering that it's both units. I think it's three ninety nine. Uh, but it's a popper and a dropper. Um, you can set it up to have more. Not bad at all. No, and you can set it up for more than one unit. The remote has like 40 fucking buttons on it, and you can do like eight units, I think. Um, but, no, it's super easy to use. I've been super impressed. And it uses normal batteries, so which is oh, yeah. super nice. So when your dumbass leaves it on, you don't have to worry about plugging in a Charlie's put new batteries in because I've already done that once. So, um it was yeah, not a big deal. I don't have to wait for the charge to go buy new batteries, put it in, no big deal. But yeah, so uh the one thing that, that I uh the people that are my what I call my guys in Holland, um, what's unique about them because Holland has exactly the same thing that we have over here. There's a lot of people that breed dogs and there's a lot of people that have working dogs, but very few people have used their dogs on the street. Um and so bridging the gap between the K and PV sport dog, which it's, it's a sport now. I mean, you don't even need the PH one to be a, a Dutch police dog. Uh, you know, they've got their separate, the Dutch police dog certificate. And, um, there's not very many people, even in Holland that have actually deployed and used their dogs. And, you know, I've never deployed and used a dog before. So I, I, I rely heavily on the feedback from people that, that have, you know, and so I can't take direction from, from people who, who don't have that, you know, cause it's just like me. Like I might as well just be sticking to what I'm doing if that's, if that's the case. And since I rely so much on feedback of people who've actually used their dogs in situations, um, it's the same in Holland. If you go to the wrong source and the wrong person, um, it, you know, you're not going to get the right, the, the right direction uh, or the right product if you're going and looking for, for a sport dog producer over there or a, or a what I call a, a dog trader, the same as a horse trader, somebody who just, they just sell dogs. And they're not necessarily bad dogs, but uh, they're, you know, really sport dogs, like really super, super sporty dogs. 
and they really don't, they're really not what I would call a police dog. Um, they're a little soft for a police dog or, or whatever, but they've never used the dogs on the street. So how, you know, they're going by what they think we want or what they want because they're, you know, they're sport dog people. And, um, although I think I'm not, I'm not doing the whole like argument between sport dog and real dog because we, you know, the dog is sitting in my kennel right now. Uh, we know is very real dog and was also a very successful sport dog. Um, I think there can be both, but I do think that there are sport dogs, you know, that are just sport dogs. And, uh, and, and, you can get in trouble. You can get really in trouble if you think that everybody in Holland or everybody in Europe has this magical dog gene that they are just these these masters of breeding canines. And that's, you know, it's that's no what they think. There. Ham- <laughs> I can't count yeah. the number it of times. On who you talk to. Well, and I can't count it the number of times. I, I, there's some specific people I'm thinking of, but I, there's a couple of guys that you know they're like, well, in Holland we do it this way. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. We're not in Holland. Like, I don't care how you do it over there, then stay over there. I mean, fuck, Holland is the size of my county I live in. I'm like, the United States is a really big fucking place. We do things different here. I don't care how you do it there or in England or wherever else. We live here. I train dogs here. And most of them have never used the dog, right. you know? Wow. And so that's that's the reason, like, like, uh, like Dick and Selena, they, they come from, you know, he was, I think, 40 years Dutch police. And he's one of the few people that actually used his own dog that he bred. You know, not very many people can say that, that they're third-generation Dutch dog breeders, and they got to use lots of their own stock on the, on the street. And uh, to me, that's the ultimate test right there. If you're willing to put your life behind the dog that you produce and you like them enough to try to completely replicate that dog over and over and over again, you must have been a pretty hell of a dog. Um, and, and so that, that was my biggest reason for, for going with this line of dogs is it was the whole package for me. Um, and, yes, there are some differences. Uh, but when I started the basis for my breeding program, I wanted the hardest of the hard dogs because I can always soften up a line. I can always bring in another line that's a little softer and a little more biddable, a little more handler uh, friendly, um, but I can't harden the line back up. It's very difficult to harden the line back up uh, once you soften it up, but I can always add in something soft. Um, and, and so that was the past three years of, the dog. I mean, most people who who have at least been around most of the dogs that, at least my stud dogs, will tell you they're they're not your they're not dogs that very many people want to mess with. Oh, yeah. Um, I know the one you've got in the kennel now. I've worked him. He's a dickhead, and he's <laughs> when and he's proven it. And he's oh, yeah. proven that he's real oh, yeah, <laughs> on several I, occasions. I uh, so. Um, but but there's an importance for for dogs like that. Not, now I can't send that dog out to be a patrol dog. Like he's not that kind of dog. Um, really, that dog is that dog is Lee Ray's dog. Even though he lives with me now, like he tolerates me and we get along good. And uh, he's got so much obedience that we can really get along uh, fine. But that was a one. That's a one person dog, and uh, and it's just the way that it is. And so um, there's a that dog is not a dog that I could go put on the street because he's not going to adjust to a handler. Um, no matter how much time or how much hand feeding he does with a handler, he's, he's just not like that. He's, 
he, as far as he's concerned, he's only going to have one handler in his life. But his genetics, uh, I, like I said, I can soften him up. I can breed him to something else uh, that's a little more handler friendly. And then if he produces himself uh, as a as a dog athlete, you know, as a specimen, um, or he was prepared as a police dog, you know, that dog was never prepared as a police dog. He was always prepared as a as a sport dog. Uh, he might be a little bit different, but I promise you that dog and dogs like him because my, pretty much all the dogs in my kennel are about the same. Uh, they're never going to say no, ever. I, I mean, I, I've taken them and put them in every situation that you could ever imagine, and I, they never say no, you know, because they just don't have it in them. Um, and I can take a dog that's never – they're a little bit later maturing dog. Even Leroy will tell you that dog was a little bit later maturing dog. But what I'm finding is uh, even though they're later maturing, they end up about the same place at the same time uh, because once they start working, their bite work goes so quickly because it's never about equipment for them. You know, to, to them, you know, like you've said several times, the equipment is for us. It's not for the dog. Uh, and, and a lot of people really get hung up on that, 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 we got to take this step and this step and this step and this step. And when it comes down, you just got to read the dog in front of you. Some dogs, you can start them on the suit right away. Uh, some dogs you can't, you know, but, but so many people have got to have these methodical step by step by step by step process. Yeah. We just, and, uh, we just, and, we just finished a dog that he was raised in a pet home and raised as a pet. Um, and he, went from never biting a person to finishing a patrol school in 10 weeks. And that dog never saw a, he didn't start biting till he was two and never has never to this day has never seen a hard sleeve. And I don't, I, he'll bite it if I stuck it out there. I'm pretty sure. But I mean, he's just, he's just like that. So I mean, that's my kind of dog. Right. And he's, you know, he's to me, the, the big thing for me is, um, the premise of the lines that I chose, and I'm just saying they're the ones I chose. I'm not saying anybody else has to. I'm not saying they're this this unicorn dog, because there's a lot a lot a lot of nice genetics out there. Not not just this is the one that I chose. Is to me, if a dog is genetically predisposed to to not have a fear to engage a man, not go into defense. That's not what I'm saying. That I'm with you on that. If I see defense, <laughs> defensive behavior in a Dutch dog, it's it's done. Like that's not because that's not confident, you know, to me. Um, so if a dog is is doesn't know how to say no, you know, they're gonna bite whatever's in front of them. You know, if I ask him, it doesn't matter what it is. That they are almost fearless, you know, to, to, as fearless as something can actually be. That dog is, you know, if it's a leg in front of them, they're going to bite it. If it's a bicep, they're going to bite it. If it's a tricep, they're going to bite it. They don't know how to say no. And it's all genetics. You know, you can teach dogs bad habits, but if I can take Chachi's or, or Justin, uh, Justin, our, our friend's um, dog, he brought over. Uh, he brought it over as a seven-year-old dog, had never had a bite. And, I mean, this thing comes over and is just, bare. I mean, she's a leg dog and naturally a leg dog. And, I mean, you would have thought she'd been on a leg her whole life. You know, first bite on the suit. To me, that's genetics. That's, and if a dog doesn't have to choose to be like that, they can never choose to not be like that. You know, if you have to build a dog up and you have to constantly build a dog up into being this this uh, proficient dog, uh, it had to make choices along the way to become that way. And and to me, if it can make – if it 
can make choices to be that way. It can also make the choices to not be that way. Some sometime down the line, uh, there's and it might never happen. And, and but in the back of my head, that's it's always a thought for me. If the dog right. can, can decide to 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 be like that, they can always decide to not be like that. Right. So, um, uh, and that's why genetics is such key to me. Yeah. So this has been exactly what I thought it would be. It's been fucking fantastic. So where can everybody find you online? Not to not to not to creep you for your videos, but like, because uh, I know that you've got the Saint Working Dogs on Facebook, right, and on Instagram. Yeah, my Instagram. I don't even remember the password of my Instagram, so I'm gonna have to work on that. Uh, <laughs> at least the Saint Working Dogs Instagram. I, I have my personal Instagram, but uh, I got a website, SaintWorkingDogs.com, um, and it'll email. You can email me through there. Uh, it's SaintWorkingDogs at Gmail dot com. Uh, Facebook's a pretty good way to to get a hold of me. Um, you know, it's it's an easy way for me to kind of keep everyone uh, organized on there. So I'm not the greatest at that. I think I think um, Eric is the only person that I really talk to on Instagram. So yeah. So uh, Eric, you can find at Van S Canine on Instagram and on Facebook, and me, you can find me at Working Dog Dry Goods. Uh, you can find me at Ted underscore Summers. You can find me at Torchlight Canine, and of course, Working underscore Dog Working or underscore Radio. So. Kendall, it's been awesome. I think this episode will be uh, pretty popular, so I appreciate the time. Hey, you guys, thanks so much. It's super flattering for you guys to have me on. I really, really appreciate you guys listening to me ramble. (laughs) It was good. We'll talk to you soon. All right. right. Thanks, guys. See ya. I want to talk about something near and dear to my heart. That's the Police Canine Association, or PK9A. They were formed in 1985 by handlers for handlers. They're a 501c3 nonprofit that helps support active and retired canine units through fundraising and the sale of some badass merchandise. Please take a minute to check out their newly designed website at www.pk9a.com. That's pk9a.com. I've been a member there for 13 years and the current training director there. I can tell you there are some big things in the works to expand the nonprofit to help canine units all over. If you're on Instagram, check them out for some amazing content at Police Canine Association or Police Canine Association on Facebook. Working Dog Radio is edited and co-produced by Dustin Bryant of Bracket Designs. Be sure to hit him up at bracketdesigns.com for any branding or content-related work you have. We were graciously granted permission to use this rad music by Brother Deeg. Go buy him a beer at Brother Deeg, spelled D-E-G-E dot blogspot dot com, spelled D-E-G-E, or hit him up on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or any other music streaming stores. Check the show notes for links to both of these creative geniuses.